0: In June 2020, professional golfer Nick Watney was playing the RBC Heritage Tournament in Hilton Head, South Carolina. The morning after the first day of play, he did what he always does when he first wakes up. He checked his phone to see how well he had slept the night before. He was wearing a WHOOP, a fitness and sleep tracker that provides real-time information on fundamental physiological parameters, including respiratory rate, heart rate, heart rate variability, and total amount of REM sleep and slow wave sleep. He noticed his numbers were off. His respiratory rate had jumped significantly from the previous readings. He otherwise felt fine. He wasn't short of breath, but knowing what he knew about COVID, could this be an indicator he had tested negative two days prior, but just to be on the safe side, he called the tournament officials and requested to be tested again. To his surprise, he was positive. Welcome to the IQT podcast. On today's episode, we'll discuss the promise of clinical forecasting and why COVID demonstrates the potential for improved capabilities in disease surveillance. We will also explore the opportunities to broker a transition from a sick care system to a healthcare system. Joining me on the conversation today are Dr. Dan Hanfling and Eugene Chu. Dr. Dan Hanfling is a vice president of technology at Bnext, the life science arm of IQT, singularly focused on the threats infectious disease epidemics pose to national security. Dan is an emergency physician, an expert in operational emergency medicine and disaster response, and a recognized national leader in healthcare emergency preparedness. He has been at IQT since the beginning of 2019, having come from spending four years as a senior advisor supporting the Department of Health and Human Services' National Healthcare Preparedness Program. He currently co chairs the National Academy of Sciences Forum on Medical and Public Health Preparedness. Eugene Chu is a senior partner on InQtel's investment team, leading IQT's investments in healthcare and life sciences ventures with IQT's BNEXT team. He has also been responsible for a number of IQT investments in the areas of quantum computing, advanced analytics, and artificial intelligence. Eugene has been on the IQT investment team since 2013 and prior to IQT, co-founded and led business development, marketing, and commercial operations at multiple venture-backed life sciences and enterprise software companies. Dan, Eugene, welcome to the show. Great to have you today. Uh, first and foremost, you know this topic, this idea of uh, healthcare systems and mo- forecast monitoring and, uh, and, and national security, why, why is this even important today and now? What is the context that brings us to this conversation at this point in time?
1: Well, let me, let me kick it off. Um, you know, I, I think COVID, COVID has made clear, uh, the promise, uh, that new technologies and not so, some not so new technologies can play in helping us identify where there's illness in the community and how to better, how to better protect people, uh, from potential exposure and also how to protect our health system from potential collapse. So, uh, you know, COVID basically has accelerated what was, chugging along uh, prior to to the outbreak uh, at the end of 2019 and gives us an opportunity to look at digital health tools as a part of our health security capabilities.
2: I would add that uh, COVID has really changed uh, the awareness of digital health as well. So, you know, telemedicine has actually been around and telehealth in general has been around for a long time, Uh, but consumers now and, and, you know, the population in general, the general public, has really uh, gotten an appreciation of the power of remote consultation and, and the power of digital health tools. And you know, one of the biggest challenges is adoption of these tools, both by the, the patient or the consumer as well as by the uh, clinical community. And COVID has really accelerated all of that. So, uh, if you look at um, you know April of, of last year, 2020. A little over forty percent of uh, you know, patient visits were done remotely, and that's that's huge. That's dramatically uh, different than the adoption rates uh, before, and it's also changed uh, a lot of the way that uh, even the you know broader reimbursement and regulatory environment uh, recognizes telemedicine to provide for reimbursement of of these types of tools. So we're now in an environment where uh you know it's being used uh and it has the opportunity to really make an impact i mean that's separate and aside from you know the financial uh, envir- uh environment but uh, just that adoption yeah
0: so thing. certainly COVID uh, has accelerated the interest of of dan what you call rpm remote or what, what's referred to as rpm remote patient monitoring uh, and Eugene from your exposure on sort of the the financial investment side uh there's some big bucks involved here uh you've spent some time i think looking into the market landscape um and you've, you've you know looked at valuations and, and various activity in the space could you speak a little bit just about in gen- you know early big terms here uh how's big business sort of supporting this uh this this drive and this demand that we're seeing now
2: so uh... In terms of big business, or I mean, just probably big dollars.
0: I'm talking about big dollars here. It, it seems like a pretty big industry.
2: Sure. So there's big business and there's big dollars uh, in in this. There's a little bit of both here. Uh, so in terms of the dollars, uh, you yeah, know, there's more and more funding now than than ever before in in what we call you know, and the broad space of of digital health. So the first, Rock Health is a group that does a lot of investments in the space, but also tracks the space in terms of, and has been tracking it for the last, you know, 10 plus years uh, in terms of uh, funding and financings. And if you look at uh, just the first half of this year, 2021, there were nearly $15 billion in digital health funding, which was more than all of 2020 uh, combined. And, and, you know, that has been a uh, significant growth over... You know, over the past decade. So if you look at all of venture investments uh, in, let's say, 10 years ago, 2011, digital health was just 2%. In 2020, it was uh, close to 10%, about 9%. So you know, as a share of venture investments, it's quite significant. The The number of deals are, are increasing. The size of the deals are increasing. You've got IPOs and now SPACs as well in terms of public exit activity. Uh, so you know, already there have been uh, 11 IPOs and SPACs and another 10 or 11 expected uh, later this year. So there's just a lot of activity as well as even consolidation of of major players. Uh, folks like um, uh, Grand Run Health have merged with Doctor on Demand. Uh, you've got some of the bigger, um, you know, the bigger combinations uh, that that folks are aware of as well. But there mm-hmm. are a number of uh, different types of you know, uh, financing activities and uh, types of deals going on in this space that just spurs, I think, more and more excitement and innovation. So there's
0: certainly consumer interest. There's a lot of uh, business and activity in that regard backing this up. Let's take a step back from all that and think about how does this all really relate? You know, we're, we're on the IQT podcast. Uh, we certainly care a lot about national security. Um, any commentary on health security and its connection or relevance uh, to national security in general?
1: Yeah, so, you know, um, when, I, when I think about national security, you know, we're, we're taking steps to protect the nation. Well, protecting the health of the nation has got to be a fundamental part of any consideration of assuring, you know, national security. And actually, that concept really came into, into focus. Uh, Over the last number of years, recognizing that health security is a fundamental aspect of of national security and the digital health tools uh, that Eugene just uh, outlined, uh, which when I think of it, I think of it in in, in the context of telemedicine and real time connectivity, uh, you know, much like we're connected now, uh, sensors and wearables and other means to acquire basic information like the remote patient monitoring that you alluded to. And then the ability to take all that information and see it and use it for actionable decisions uh, becomes the security component of the clinical, medical, and public health uh you know, uh portion of this of this discussion. So health security really, I think, can be augmented significantly by taking what we have seen from the COVID-19 response and the tremendous interest in the use of digital health technologies, and as Eugene alluded to, the change in the regulatory framework and the regulatory environment in which uh, these tools are being applied. And it can really, I think, accelerate and promote uh, you know, the concepts of health security as we've uh, envisioned them, as we've described them, and as we clearly need them uh, going forward.
0: And what is it that we, so when we think about remote patient monitoring, uh, and we think about, and we compare it to say, you know, in-person visits that we're all used to, um, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, no matter what I'm going in for, I'm always getting checked for my weight, my, my blood pressure, perhaps my pulse, um, and, and more recent term and more recent times, my, uh, the oxygen levels, uh, that, that are, you know, contained within. how how relatable or how common uh, are some of these things uh, becoming in a remote environment? In other words, the vital signs that we care for in an in-person clinical setting versus say one that is a remote setting, where are we in terms of what we care for? Are they the same? Are there there more, Are are there fewer? And where do capabilities lie therein?
1: Yeah, yeah, so you know, there's a reason we call vital signs vital because they really are the marker of how well or unwell any individual is. You know, as an emergency physician, that's actually probably the first thing I look at when I first assess a patient in the ER. And it's actually probably the last thing I look at before I feel comfortable either letting them go home or if they need to be admitted to the hospital, you know, make sure that I've made a proper disposition in terms of where, where they're going, to the ICU or to the floor, wherever. So vital signs are critically important. And in, 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 you know, in this current state, with the degree of um, wearables and sensors, that are now available. In fact, I think it was estimated just prior to the onset of COVID that probably one in five Americans wear a fitness tracker, you know, the Apple Watch, Fitbit, you know, whatever. Uh, and and that, those those tools uh, really capture the, the critical critically important information, pulse rate, respiratory rate, you know, sometimes temperature, uh, movement activity, all the sorts of key elements that really make vital signs vital. Uh, And I'll tell you a quick story uh, from my own history, uh, going back 20 years to the inhalation anthrax cases uh, in the immediate setting of of the 9-11 attacks and and what were uh, essentially uh, unprecedented uh, delivery of anthrax in the US mail system. And we actually were lucky enough, probably lucky more than good, to diagnose two of the inhalation anthrax cases that occurred in postal workers in the Washington, D.C. area. We contributed to the successful diagnosis of a third uh, postal worker. And we basically were alerted to the fact that there was something wrong because their vital signs were abnormal. Now, fast forward to the present time. Think about the power of being able to look at a large population base and be able right off the bat to say, you know, we ought to concentrate on this group of folks because their vital signs are abnormal. Their respiratory rate is elevated and their heart rate is elevated, which can be, again, indicators of illness. We may not know whether it's COVID or influenza or even, God forbid, uh, anthrax, but we know that there's something wrong. And so that really is the power of being able to decentralize and move that data acquisition out into the community uh, in real time as opposed to having people come and essentially over what could be overwhelm the health system, seeking seeking advice, seeking reassurance, seeking information with regards to whether or not they've been exposed to something.
2: And I think to Dan's point about, you know, so many uh, folks out there now wearing these types of trackers, etc. what's powerful about that is that we have a lot of data Coming in, and uh, those various companies, whether it's Whoop or or Fitbit or Apple Watch and others or Ring, you know, have partnered with various uh, clinical facilities to do studies, uh, because they have ability to engage with the users not not only via the uh, the tracker itself or the wearable itself, but also via the app. They can ask questions. You know, do you have symptoms? Do you act, did you actually get diagnosed with COVID, et cetera? And they can use that information not to get, you know, true, uh, clinically, uh, uh, you know, sophisticated or, or clinic, well, you know, well-designed clinical trial data, but just sort of high-level correlations to suggest whether the um, whether the uh, this metrics that they are tracking are suggestive or uh, suggestive of risk of. Of disease, there are there also companies um, uh, who are doing uh, well-designed trials to try to get, uh, you know, FDA or regulatory-approved devices for uh, diagnosis or uh, increased risk of of uh, of COVID and other respiratory infections. Companies like Empatica, Dan, if you want to. Talk about them at all, but you know, these types of things are also uh, coming to, to the Yeah, fore. so so
1: actually, um, I'd like to talk about about both. First, just to to highlight, you know, the notion that um, that this sort of data now is being analyzed. Actually, there was an article that was released in JAMA last week that highlighted work that's being done uh, at the Scripps Research Translational uh, Institute in La Jolla uh, that has looked at. 37,000 individuals who have used a variety of different wearables, you know, commercial off-the-shelf wearables, Apple, Fitbit, Garmin, et cetera, and looked at at them over time to see uh, if they could use that data both to highlight whether or not there was exposure to COVID, but in particular, they're now using it to look at that subgroup of patients who were exposed to COVID uh, confirmed exposed to COVID and looking at long term symptoms and whether there's an alteration of their vital signs uh, that might be an indicator of the, the long haul, uh, long haul COVID uh, symptoms. So, um, so that I think is, is testament to the fact that there's a lot of interest and, and the data is critically important. Let me talk about, uh, Empatica, uh, whoop, uh, Aura and so on. Uh, you know, as examples of startups that are honing in on uh, the identification using their particular algorithms of specific uh, indicators that might uh, highlight a risk of uh, of COVID. So, for example, with Empatica, Empatica is looking at respiratory rate and has uh, been doing work uh, financed and funded by BARDA, the Biological Advanced Research Development Authority. To actually look at whether or not their platform might um, be an early detector of COVID, and indeed, um, they have some some data recently shared uh, that uh, suggests that that indeed um, you can pick up based on subtle variations in respiratory rate uh, the risk of COVID. Uh, same with whoop, and the example of the golfer that you uh, that you provided at the at the outset of the discussion. So you know, I, I think that what For me what becomes very interesting is not looking at it from a retrospective perspective but can we look at this prospectively and begin to amass this data in real time and link it geographically so that we can get a better understanding predictive analytics if you will of where disease may be evolving and that will be very helpful both with regards to giving information to individuals it will also be very helpful to support the health care and public health systems in helping them augment uh, necessary resources, if, if if it looks like you know that, that there's going to be disease in their given community, so the promise here is just tremendous, uh, and I think that um, you know that that's that's why we're talking about it today because at the end of the day, I think that this really represents 21st century medical and public health, uh, you know, disaster and catastrophic health emergency preparedness.
2: Dan, that's really interesting because you I think it's important to highlight again what you just said earlier uh, this distinction between information for the individual uh, and actions that the individual might take as as well as uh, indiv- information that could be looked at either for the system or for the community in in general so if you take a look at uh, a company that you and i are both quite familiar with khealth you know this is uh, an incredible uh, application uh, platform that combines Artificial intelligence with an app that helps to uh, triage, in some respects, uh, individuals to understand uh, what potential uh, clinical condition they might have uh, based on, uh, you know, based on information that they provide uh, and what other uh, patients have had similar to them, uh, if you will, uh, and you know that's a tool that's. Uh, you know, has immense power in terms of being able to deliver that information sort of anywhere, anytime uh, without having to wait in line, right? So I- immensely powerful information uh, to the individual. Uh, they are scaling that uh, nationally and, and in some cases internationally, uh, where they are working with some large uh, insurers and, and care groups to be able to provide their App And all of a sudden that type of information could be aggregated for uh, the public health community type uh, information uh, and analytics that that you just mentioned.
0: I'm really excited by this prospect of disease surveillance and and being combined with not just surveillance uh, and response, but perhaps as Dan as you've suggested in some regard. Creating a predictive capability, Uh, in other words, being able to see uh, where disease evolution is taking place, where perhaps the next pandemic or epidemic may, uh, may erupt. Um, But I think a lot of this is predicated from what I'm gathering from the conversation here. A lot of this is predicated upon the access uh, to a good quality data set, good information, uh, amassing large amounts of truthful data that can then sort of be used to infer and predict upon uh, and potentially, you know, uh, understand something as just before it happens or long before it happens. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I just throw out there for us to think about juxtapose that with the concept, you know, we are talking a lot about, I think you've all mentioned a number of companies, a number of large and small companies that are, uh, involved in, in sort of the wearable space, uh, in the diagnostic space. Um, you know, if, if I'm applying what I understand about the way business works with the way, perhaps what is, what is, with the way, how things ought to go, if we're thinking about a, a large population's health, uh, what happens when we start seeing things like companies hoarding their data? So... You know, an ecosystem of, of openly available data certainly makes sense to help inform a predictive capability. But if we've got individual companies who are profit driven, uh, motivated by you know doing business, uh, how does that lend itself, or or can it lend itself still to creating this capability we're talking about, amassing a large quality data set or a set of information that is a- actionable and very beneficial to the to the public, to to the general public uh, and their health concern? Open question to either of you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it's, a, it's a good question and it's a big question, and it, it touches on a whole host of issues, including privacy and security and, you know, how the information is going to be used and to whose benefit, et cetera. Uh, I'll go back, actually, to, to highlight what Eugene highlighted on my comments, which is the population health, uh, you know, benefits here. I think that, um, and I'll tie that back to the notion of health security. I think that much like um, you know, much like other um, data sets of of value and importance, think about clean air and clean clean water and so on things that actually have an impact on the population writ large. That this sort of data will need to be considered in that context, and um, and as a as a component of health security or national security, uh, if need be, there probably ought to be certain policies, procedures, guidelines, or or other means of assuring that, you know, de-identified large-scale data sets are made available both for research, but also in real time for the proactive, you know, uh, visibility uh, that we've just alluded to with regards to some of the, you know, public health data um, surveillance capabilities that that this information provides. Uh, And, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, looking back over the last 18 months, the one thing we didn't have is we didn't have data. We, we were flying blind. We were largely flying blind in the midst of this evolving pandemic, uh, you know, here in the United States, let alone across the rest of the globe. And, uh, and that just shouldn't be in, the tw- in, 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 in you know, 2021. We, we, we should be able to see in real time or as very near real time as possible what is evolving in any given community, and that's I think that's where we are quickly headed. And I think that's where the promise of these digital health technologies, especially the wearables and sensors, combined with the telemedicine teleconnectivity that allows not you know just not just um, you know the individual but communities to be connected, I think is is really where where this is going. So hopefully that answers your your question. It's a good one. Okay.
2: I think you'll also see that uh, you know, certain groups are actually relatively open with with sharing, you know, I wouldn't say the raw data, but the insights, some of the insights uh, from from their data. So uh, another company that Dan and I are both familiar with, a company called Kinza, has a website called HealthWeather.us, and you can go to that site and you can you know click on a, a map of the U.S. and and click on a state and see. Information about risk details and county information, uh, and where are they getting that? They're getting that information from a real-time collection of uh, app uh, inputs and uh, data that they're collecting from a network of uh, smart thermometers that they, that they have uh, millions of smart thermometers across households uh, in in the United States, uh, and. You know they're showing that fairly openly, and you you'll see that for other companies as well is that they're they're showing the sort of high level data openly, but then uh, they are also finding an opportunity to commercialize that information by providing more in depth analysis and in depth analytic capabilities to certain customer groups, whether those are uh, municipalities or state governments or other public health agencies, or even large corporations who are interested in understanding. Uh, what's the, you know, health risks uh, within their large campuses and, and things like that. So, uh, I think what you'll see is different layers of sharing and openness, but also, you know, opportunities to, to commercialize that. And it's
0: promising to hear. It's a, it's it's good to hear companies find a balance, strike a balance between you know being able to survive, exist, profit, uh, and also provide sort of a, a social good there. Um, so let's talk about. Cap- we've, we've spent a, a fair bit of time sort of establishing context, and, and I'm now convinced that this this is in fact a very important conversation to have now. And there's a, a lot of uh, evidence to support that, uh, both in in terms of you know population health needs as well as as uh, as, as well as demand on, on startup businesses and big businesses. Let's talk about the current capabilities. Are are we there yet? Do we have everything we need in order to, to enable full scale remote patient monitoring? Are there are there limitations that we're facing currently? um what are your thoughts on on you know the state of affairs currently and perhaps where we're headed uh, and where we might be deficient in order to make this actually work
1: uh you know i I mean i'll i'll start and i'd be interested in in eugene's perspective on this as well Mm -hmm. but you know i I think from a technical and technological perspective we're largely there Uh, you know again if we're focused on on vital signs uh being vital uh you know then i think a number of the Uh, capabilities that we've alluded to over the span of the last, uh, 20 minutes in discussion, you know, really, um, get us to being able to capture that information with some degree of fidelity. I think, I think that, you know, that is what is the holy grail, which is to, to further improve upon, um, the clarity of the signal, the reliability of the signal, uh, I think the big step that we still need to take is how to integrate all those inputs and be able to uh access them uh you know um uh, interpret them and then report them uh in a manner that again provides for actionable mm-hmm. intelligence. Uh that infrastructure does not really exist. That is still very much in the words of our uh, old colleague uh, Dylan George very much bespoke to the individual um, uh, uh, companies and and capabilities that they've put forward. And so what I think we're going to need to do is we're going to need to to see more government um, uh, involvement, frankly, in helping to create that kind of public health data infrastructure that will really be required uh, to be able to ingest, analyze, predict, and report uh, the vast uh, amount of information that we you know, that we would need uh, to be able to to make the kind of determinations going forward.
2: Yeah, I would agree with Dan. Uh, yeah, the technology has really changed over the last uh, you know five ten years in terms of its availability, its its cost, uh, and um, its prevalence, if you will, uh, out in out in the wild. So. Uh, these sensors are you know inexpensive. they can communicate quite well with uh, you know almost everybody has you know mobile phone uh, and ability to then connect to a larger network. Uh, so all these things are are all out there. Um, the the adoption is is beginning uh, and so it's really it's really the the interpretation of of all of that all of that information, uh, and you know I think we're seeing that a lot uh, a lot here in the U.S. Uh, more and more. But uh, there are certain other uh, countries also who are very aggressive in this field. So, if you look at China as an example, uh, digital health has really picked up there. Some of the, their largest companies are. Uh, digital health companies that are uh, spin-offs or associates of the large you know very large tech companies and whether they're they uh, you know telehealth providers or they call them internet hospitals or you know different types of of um, of uh, you know digital medicine apps etc that is becoming uh, more and more, how care is going to be delivered in China, especially given uh, the number of physicians and clinical clinical providers they have relative to their very large uh, population in uh, re- many cases remote settings, uh, as well as um, uh, you know, as well as just generally the the costs to be able to provide that care. It's a good
0: point. I wanted to actually also ask a little bit about what, how do we think this will. Uh you know the sort of the the onslaught of these sensors and the remote patient monitoring uh, capabilities how will how will this impact the way that healthcare is delivered I mean for, from sort of a healthcare system or a provider perspective right Dan you know specifically you had you've had a long-standing career in what we'll call sort of the the system leading up till now how do you how do you think you and your colleagues will will either adapt or adjust or what kind of changes do you think will have to take place broad you know broad big picture strokes here
1: yeah, well, you you know you you threw out a term uh, in passing a few minutes ago that I was hoping we would get a chance to come back to, which is you know sort of differentiating between healthcare and sick care, and you know it's probably just a turn of a phrase. Uh, I'm not I, I certainly didn't come up with it. Uh, I've heard others uh, describe it as well, but you know essentially, for the most part, the U.S. healthcare system right now is a sick care system. You know we show up when we're sick. Or we think we're sick, or you know we have questions of the doctor, and so on, and um, and that is you know from an economic perspective that's very inefficient. From a healthcare delivery perspective, that's very inefficient, and it's oftentimes too late. So I, I, I truly believe that the capabilities that we've outlined today, that we're talking about in the context of an epidemic outbreak or other catastrophic health emergency. You know, could actually be applied in promoting and improving our healthcare system that is more finely tuned and focused on preventative healthcare. Now, in order to make that happen, we're going to have to, the government's going to have to pay for it. Uh, we're going to have to change the incentives uh, for the way that healthcare is paid for. And there are a whole host of issues related to all of that, um, you know, that would take. Uh, <clears throat> Take all the oxygen out of the room to uh, to stick with a medical sort of analogy. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot to discuss. However, if we bring that conversation back to national security, which again is about focus focusing on how to protect the nation, our economy is a key component of protecting the nation, and we look no further than what happened with COVID 19 to see you know where the economy. Uh, stood, uh, in the, especially in the, in the uh, early days of, of the onset of the pandemic. So I think that, you know, over time, uh, you know, my colleagues and those who work, you know, in the healthcare delivery system will recognize the power of these tools. And over time, I think we'll figure out how to adopt them. You know, at the end of the day, you still need a good decision maker. You're still going to need a good clinician. You're still going to need someone with excellent skills to do the surgeries or other interventions that are going to be required, but I think that we can, in the short term, begin to steer towards uh, a, a greater focus on healthcare and move us away from just sick care and use these kinds of capabilities to help to, to help get there.
2: I think that you know the, one of the biggest differences, uh, to Dan's point about this difference between healthcare and sick care, biggest differences in digital health is. You know, the availability of it, uh, that it's right there and that it can, you know, people are engaged with digital tools on a regular basis, uh, sometimes too much, uh, especially when it relates to our kids. But, uh, but, you know, on a minute to minute or certainly on a daily basis, uh, we are engaged with our digital tools and by doing so, now there's an opportunity for those digital tools, uh, if you have the sort of healthcare element of it, to engage back. And so you'll, you'll, you, what we're seeing is more and more um, funding and, and companies that are being successful uh, in digital health, working against some of these chronic uh, or, or uh, you know preventive uh, care type indications like diabetes. Right or even like you know wellness, mental health. Uh, Mental health, in fact, is was the one of the top uh, funded clinical indications in in uh, digital health over the last uh, several years. Um, So there are even uh, even um, digital health care companies, you know, in terms of digital health treatments. That are being pursued, that it would be, you know, FDA cleared or FDA approved treatments via uh, digital technologies, that are being funded uh, uh, these days, and so you know, inclusive of of things like substance abuse, you know, another company as example is Paratherapeutics, which has announced uh, its plans to go public via SPAC, uh, and that's just one of you know a handful of different companies. Wobot, uh, uh, etc., Thrive Health, uh, who are pursuing, you know, this general space of of digital health. But beyond that, you know, in terms of applications for uh, In-Q-tels, uh government partners, etc., you know, there's also, you know, because of this regular engagement, there's also the opportunity to improve performance uh, using these types of tools, uh, and so. Uh, you can be not only uh, carefully managing your health uh, as it relates to uh, disorders or potential disease or being preventive in certain cases, but also proactively looking at uh, performance activity and performance monitoring or performance improvement, uh, areas that that Dan is uh, very familiar with in terms of his work. Yeah, I
1: mean, and actually, you know, in the New York Times yesterday, there was an interesting article About the use of whoop as a um, incentive incentivizer for exercise activity, you know how uh, guys are basically checking up on each other and saying, "Hey, you know, I didn't exercise as much as the rest of my team teammates did this weekend. Uh, I better go out for a quick run tonight before I before I call it quits, um, so that everybody sees, um, you know, I'm engaged." So, you know, there are. I think. I think. I thought that was an interesting you know, uh, added sort of capability, um, you know, that, uh, again, um, Eugene to your point, you know, the fact that we're, we live on our, we live on our little digital platforms and this is now just another element. It's going to be another extension of who we are and what we do and how we do it. Uh, and if we can take that information and turn it towards, um, some of the things that we've discussed on this uh, in this uh, discussion uh, to use it for good, uh, it'll be all the better. It'll be it'll serve the individual and, and it can serve a population, you know, writ large.
0: I could personally attest to uh, the power of uh, peer pressure for good and a little bit of humble bragging. I'm actually on a uh, text chain with a handful of our Intel colleagues, actually, where we check in on a daily basis with digital receipts. You know, a picture from the Strava app, maybe a picture of your, your health app, indicating how many steps you've taken daily basis, sort of keeping tabs on each other. And uh, and actually, if you don't send a, the digital receipt for that day, whether it's a, a track run or a walk or a hike or a swim, uh, we actually have to, there's there's a financial penalty involved amongst all of us. We have to go through the pain of individually Venmoing every single person a dollar. Uh, we call it the pay to rest thread. Um, I'll bookend our conversation by, uh, by saying, I'm excited that the future is now. Uh, healthcare is already rapidly moving ahead in leaps and bounds. Uh, with regards to adoption of digital health tools, I'm excited to see, uh, based on our conversation today, where this will all end up and how it will impact just, you know, population health in general. Dan, Eugene, I want to thank you both for your time today. This has been a very exciting um, and informative conversation. Uh, I want to encourage our listeners to, to learn more about what Dan and Eugene have to say. You can learn more at bnext.org. That's B-N-E-X-T dot um, and You can see digital health resources from, uh, from the team as well as uh, featured op-eds. Uh, you can learn more about this particular topic uh, at their blog at uh, iqt.org front slash blog. Just look for Dan and Eugene's work. Uh, again, Dan, Eugene, thank you so much for your time. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesara. That's it for today. We hope to hear it, and see you all soon.